city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Here we are for this episode of the Green is the Color podcast, and I'm excited to have today's guest here because he's a great storyteller, someone who's been at the start of some pretty incredible soccer journeys, and one of my favorite three Canadians, Brian Gant. (laughs) Brian, how are you? I'm doing very well, Billy. It's good. I'm looking forward to this. I've enjoyed all the other ones, so I'm excited for you. Well, fantastic. I'm happy to have you here. We've talked before, and, and I, you know, hearing your voice and telling stories is whenever I say in any context <laughs> with this project, people need to hear what I'm hearing. You're one of the people, so um, no pressure. Okay. Well, I hope right. I come through for you, Matt. <laughs> so do I. Uh, let me start with the the more formal introduction. Uh, Brian was born in North Vancouver, British Columbia in 1952. As a Canadian international, he has 14 senior team caps. His 1972 New Westminster Blues won a Canadian national championship, and Gant won a Canadian, sorry, Canada Games gold medal in 1973 as a member of the British Columbia team. After playing collegiately at Simon Fraser University, Brian played for the first year NASL Vancouver Whitecaps, where he led the team in goals in its inaugural season. After three seasons with the Whitecaps, Brian joined the Portland Timbers in 1977, where he played the rest of his career outdoors and indoors with the team until the NSL Timbers folded in 1982. Since his time playing, Brian has called Portland home, teaching and coaching at Portland's Catlin Gable School, where he led the girls' soccer team to 12 of the first 13 Oregon Combined Division State Championships. At the club coaching level, Brian helped build one of Oregon's most storied clubs, FC Portland Academy. His impact on growing the sport from Portland, and especially what he's done to grow and legitimize the game for girls, cannot be overstated. Formally, I'd like to welcome to the Green is a Color podcast, Brian Gant. Well, thank you. That was a great introduction. I'm flattered. I'm flattered. We could stop there and, and call it a day if you want. Yeah, <laughs> that's good <Okay>. for me. <laughs> well, okay, so... Oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, I'm curious, in the 60s, Vancouver, B.C., what was it like growing up playing soccer? Because you have, uh, you have I think, more than one brother, your younger brother, Bruce, um, and Brent, right, who also grew up playing. Mm-hmm. You've got two professionals from one family. You must have had some great backyard games. Oh, it wasn't just in the backyard. It was in the in the living room. It was in the hallway. I mean, you know, uh, the wet months, you, you didn't go outside much, and so you, everything was inside. But, yeah, you're right. We'd always be out in the yard. Mom and Dad never had a garden. Uh, it was always knocked over. The balls kept hitting everything. Uh, but, you know, growing up in that family, I had four. there's four boys and two girls. We were all athletes. We were all encouraged to do sports. Uh, we lived six houses away from uh, Westburn Park where we had Westburn uh, Athletics, which was where I grew up playing soccer. We had a community center there. We had basketball courts there. Uh, I mean, that's how I grew up, and probably like a lot of American kids as well. You know, you just uh, TV was two channels, uh, Canadian channels, and so you got hockey games on Saturday night, but that was about it. So you entertained yourself 
during whenever you could by going to the park and playing. And, uh, you know, the big games, the biggest game was soccer. Everybody loved to play soccer, although we did play every other sport. And my mom and dad encouraged that. So it was, they even coached, my mom and dad both coached softball and they, they both uh, played a lot of tennis and badminton. So it was an athletic family and my mom and dad really promoted that all the time with us. That's great, Brian. And and so uh, I'm I'm going to jump ahead a little, but you're welcome to go back if if you want. But I want I saw that your brother Bruce was an NAIA national champion with Simon Fraser in 1976. Uh, yeah. The second season, that's only the second season the university was in NAIA. So you played before that. What mm-hmm. division was it? Like, how did that was it in a division uh, at Simon Fraser? And what was college soccer like in Canada in the 70s? Um, and then how did you end up at Simon Fraser? Okay. Um... Well, first of all, you know, growing up, I, you didn't play soccer to, to go to basically college to play. You just played soccer. And it, there's a league that you always strive to get into. It's called the Pacific Coast League. And it was, uh, we always thought that the players got paid lots of money and everything. That was the rumors that you heard. So they played at a place called Callister Park and also a couple other stadiums in, in uh, the lower mainland. And it was like, that was our professional team, we thought, you know, and that was our goal was to play in that that league. Well, when I went to Simon Fraser, that's the league we played in. Uh, we we played in the Pacific Coast League, played in all these stadiums. And so I was sort of, this was it, you know, I finally got around to, to sort of getting my wish come true and playing in, in these sort of iconic stadiums. Um, you know, the other thing about going going to school up there. Uh, I changed teams. I was with Westburn <clears throat> with the same two coaches for all, nine years. And so I, uh, at that point, I decided, you know, I'm, I could have stayed with Westburn, but I decided to go to Simon Fraser with uh, John Buchanan and play with university people. And we trained every day. And the guys there, were just, I trained with a number of really talented players, guys that I played with on the national team, eventually Buzzy Parsons and Tony Chersky. And so I just, my life changed quickly. I, I decided that I was going to be a student athlete and uh, training every day, going to school all day. And just, it, I really, uh, I, re- I just loved it. I, you know, matter of fact, when I finished school and I was, I told people I could go to school for the rest of my life and play soccer. That, that lifestyle was perfect for me. I just loved it. So that was how I got going with S- with SFU. Um John, John Buchanan, uh, you know, he recruited me. Uh, at that time, um, he was offering scholarships to some players, and I, I happened to receive one. And uh, you know, it was a, it was a sort of a, the first step towards something I never thought was ever going to happen. That uh, this game was going to really give back to me things that'll help me fulfill my career so it was the first stepping stone and John Buchanan was a big part of it he was a very nice man he was a very good uh, recruiter he uh, he, you want to talk about storytelling he was the best storyteller there was and he had we'd be in his office frequently just he had this he was the first office as you walked in the gymnasium door you just walk right into his office plop down in a chair and next thing you know you were hearing stories and it was fun it was a great experience for me I loved it and so I'm glad you mentioned him because um, when the Vancouver Whitecaps started in 1974, he was an assistant coach. 
I'm wondering if that's how you ended up with the Whitecaps because uh, you weren't drafted in the four-round NASL draft at the time. Yeah, there, you know, nobody was. None of our team was. They're, <laughs> right. Well, they're all Canadians. Uh, and the thing was, they wanted, in 1973, I got selected to play on the national team, and my first game was against Poland back in Toronto. And Poland had just beaten England in a World Cup uh, qualifier and everything. So they were a top-notch team. And this was a huge experience for me. And I, I loved, again, it was a, just something that I've always thought, wow, will this ever happen? Yeah, it's happening. And so I got really excited about it. And when I came back from that, um, John Buchanan and, and uh, the, the team at Simon Fraser was waiting for me. And so that was fun. And so now the Whitecaps show up in 74, and they start having these open trials. And we took, for about five or six weeks, there's probably a hundred people initially, and then they whittled it down to. We, they finally chose at the very end of it. They chose ten players, and so there was no draft. Uh, you went, you trained three nights a week, and you were out at Empire Stadium trying out. And Jim Easton was the coach at the time, and and uh, John Buchanan was there, and another fellow who coached me as well, Harry Christie, he was there. So I knew the coaching staff, and I just the whole situation, the, the guys that were trying out, I knew. Every one of them. There, you know, we played against each other or played with each other, and so the Whitecaps were trying to put together a team that could compete in the NASL that was highly composed of Canadians, especially out of Vancouver, and then finish the, finish off the roster with import players. Well, so we probably had, I think we had about six import players total, but everybody else on the squad. Uh, were Canadians. So, and, and that, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that because I think uh, something people don't necessarily remember or know about the um, North American Soccer League is that you were required to have a certain amount of North Americans on mm -hmm. the field. Yeah. Which, yeah. Can, can, Canadians counted. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, but. Yeah. And Canadians counted even in the United States. So when I went to Portland, you know, that, that it wasn't like I had to be uh, a U.S. citizen. I, you know, Canadians were North Americans, so that was a big, uh, you know, that's a big thing. And so this is cool. You were the top goal scorer that first year, and so the, the Whitecaps inaugural season, you scored over 20% of the team's goals. What's it like starting your professional career in your hometown uh, and leading a new franchise in scoring? Well, it was exciting. It's probably... It was exciting for me, but it was even more exciting for my parents. You know, they just yeah. loved it. My grandparents and everybody, you know, they, it was, uh, it was a huge thing for them. And, and it was a lot of fun. And I, that first season, everything went well for me. I, I played every minute of every game. I, I led the team in scoring. I was voted offensive player of the year. I, I, and I, and I also had, because of that success that I was having, the Canadian national team was looking at me more. So I was getting more call-ups with the national team. And so, uh, you know, call it uh, your rookie season, uh, and then then you're looking for, uh-oh, what's going to happen my my sophomore year? Because the sophomore jinx, we all know about that. But that right. first that first year was a was a uh, it was a great time. And like I say, <clears throat> I'm playing alongside. You know, we started seven sometimes, seven North Americans. <clears throat> so I'm playing alongside guys that I've played with, I grew up with. And so it was a lot of fun. And um, I think we we drew well as a as a 
as a fan base. I think you know we're around fifteen thousand for most games. But um, you know the Vancouver fans were very critical of soccer. They knew it, they know the game. They're very critical of it, but they're so supportive of us, especially that first year. That's uh, there's a lot in there that I, I know we'll get to. Um, one where we're here is the the idea that how critical but supportive, and that's something I heard from people here at the Timbers is people weren't critical because they didn't know the game, but they were supportive. It, it, it yeah. The thing about Vancouver. Growing up in Vancouver, the pockets of the city were different ethnic groups. So you had Little Italy, you had Greek Village, you had the you had the Chinatown, you had a lot of uh, Scottish in Westminster, you had a lot of English and Scottish in North Vancouver. So you had all these pockets of ethnicity, different ethnicity, and that's where the soccer came from. They all played and. Uh, you know that that was a big part of it. Well, those were the that was the fan base. Matter of fact, you know if you looked at our roster, we probably had a you know Canadian, Scottish Canadian, Italian Canadian, Greek Canadian, Peter Greco. We we had all these different players playing for us from different areas of town, and so those um, nationalities would come out and and uh, and cheer on the team. So that was that's soccer was. Uh, all across Canada, everybody's all they're doing from about uh, October on is skate because everything's frozen except in Vancouver. Vancouver's sort of moderate temperate uh, city, so you, you're outside all the time. The lakes didn't freeze, nothing froze, so you ran around, you played soccer, and so it was a huge sport in Vancouver. You know, every place you went on a weekend, there was a soccer game being played. So. The other thing that, that came out of that first bit you said, and we'll get to this, I think, a little more later, because how many people you've coached, how many people your wife have coached, just uh-huh. in your house alone right now, how many people you've, you've seen and the pride you must take and see them, uh, seeing them in their career. And you mentioned how great it was for your parents and your grandparents to see that. That's Local soccer is special, and I hope that that's something that builds out for Major League Soccer, that you know, oh. there's something to that for sure. Billy, it's, you know, the growth of this game is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, it's not just uh, – it, 75, it really took off here in Portland maybe, but it's all over the country. It's just – it's amazing how much soccer is being played. And a lot of it has to do with just, you know, immigration and things like that, people coming into the country that are that bring with them their culture, which is – a lot of it's soccer. And so it, it's a big part of, of this country's sort of, it's becoming a bit of their heritage now. You know, they, you, you, you tend to see it being played everywhere. Whereas when I first came down to the United States, uh, you know, it was, it was not played everywhere. You go to some of these cities and you like, you're in Las Vegas playing against Las Vegas Quicksilver. You know, the only soccer ball you'll find in the whole town would be on the, on the soccer field that day because nobody played it, you know? So it was, it was, it, it was different back then. And now when you start looking at it, you know, especially on the women's side, my God, it's just, it's phenomenal. And so uh, to back up just a little bit, uh, sure. World Cup qualifying in the 1970s, uh, a bit different now than when you think of CONCACAF now uh, and, and all the different qualifications and countries involved. What was it like in the 70s trying to qualify for a World Cup with Canada through CONCACAF still, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, first of all, 
first of all, before you got invited to the CONCACAF tournament, you had to have a three-team round-robin playoff. So that, so my first, that, the first few years, right up until probably, yeah, 1977, I guess, the three teams that we had to have a playoff with, there was us, the United States, and Mexico. So Mexico would be the team that went through every time. Then it became two teams went through. So, uh, well, back in those days, um, the United States were good. They were a good team, but Canada was a better team. And so for the World Cup uh Concacaf tournament in '76, and then the one in '80, 80, uh, '82, I think it was. And the U.S. didn't didn't get out of the bracket. It was Mexico and Canada that went through the Concacaf tournament, and then uh, then only one out of that tournament. So there would be, so I think there were six teams in that tournament. Only one came out for, for in 1976. Well, and then in 1980. Two teams started to come out, and now it's two. And now I think there's three teams out of Concacaf, maybe even four, uh, with the expanded uh, grouping that they're having. So there's more opportunities to play. Uh, back when when I first got started, God, it was so tough. I remember playing. You know, we we beat Mexico uh, back in '76. We beat them uh, one nil in Vancouver, which was ap- an absolute upset. And okay. uh, and then we turn around, we lose to the U.S. So then, the, you know, as it works out, the U.S. and and Canada are tied up to the tournament. So we have to have a playoff game. And the playoff game is being held in uh, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So it's a one-off, one game against the United States and Canada. Well, our federation, which, you know, struggled to uh, – even called a federation at that time. You know, they said, "Well, we'll go down and train in 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 Haiti. We'll go down there and train because it's cheaper." So we fly to Haiti. We train for a week, or I think it was ten days, and we're to play against uh, the U.S. And the U.S. is training in Miami, Florida, on the beaches and everything. And and it was just a joke. We were, we go to training. Our first training session in Haiti, they uh, they kicked us off the field. And it wasn't – it was a group of guys kicked us off the field. It was like a gang. And they just came up and threatened us and said, you're on our park. Get out of here. You don't belong here. But And we we were off the field. Well, how can a Canadian national team do be involved in something like that? So we're there training. And then three days before we're supposed to play the U.S., we have a big team meeting, big gathering. We're down by, in the conference room. And our the general manager of the federation walks in and says, "Guys, I'm sorry, but we're having a huge issue right now. Um, we've run out of money. We have to go home. We have to forfeit the game." And we're like, "What?" And so we're on the verge of forfeiting this game against the United States, in which you, you go on to Concacaf and maybe get a chance for a World Cup. So we're going to forfeit it. And then out of the blue, some business guy from uh, someplace in British Columbia donates $20,000, and now we get to play. And we end up winning the game 3 nothing, and we qualify, so we, go, we move on to uh, – at that time, we moved on to um, 
Mexico and Mexico City because that's where CONCACAF was being played. But the, the, that's how our federation worked back in those days. It was, uh, you just never knew. You know, we'd go on, yeah. on a European trip to play games. We played one international game. We played uh, six other games, but we played it just against adverse uh, sides. You know, it wasn't even something that made us that competitive. And I often wondered, well, why are we doing that? Well, you know, because I was in school at times, so I'm taking five weeks off school. You got to drop courses now when you come back, otherwise you're not going to get by. So it, it was a, the federation, and you know, not just Concacaf, but the federal Canadian federation. It was it it really had no view of let's get better. Whereas the United States, we everybody said this. United States eventually. This is, we're saying this back in seventy five, seventy six. United States will be outstanding. I mean, I, we wouldn't say they're going to win a World Cup someday, but they're definitely going to be a, a factor in it. And and it's just a matter of how soon. So, and even to this day, Billy, you know, you you, you think of all the things that go on with the women's side in Canada. You know, they just besides lack of pay, they they don't play any home games. They don't do it, it. They're just sort of treated like second citizens at times. Well, that, that was us. And that's sort of, you know, Canada doesn't go after sports like the U.S. goes after sports. The U.S., you know, sports is, a, is life. And mm-hmm. in Canada, it's a hobby, you know, and that's how they treat it. So There's a there's a lot there that's going through my head right now. Yeah. I, I, oh, I yeah. Think the, only, the only thing I can do is stay with the questions, unfortunately, because I want to – okay, i got to ask one question. How did the, how did the match in Mexico have go? Uh, the 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 Concacaf tournament in Mexico, yeah. yeah, we did well. Um, let's see, we 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 lost we we lost El Salvador the first game, and then we beat Suriname, we beat Guatemala, we tied Haiti, and then we lost to Mexico. And had we tied Mexico, then we would have gone through. But you know, we, we and we ended up playing a man down. We were up one nil. One of our players got tossed, and then we ended up losing 3-1. So Mexico went through in that one. That, it was only one team going through. The following, the 1980 uh, CONCACAF tournament, two teams were going to go through. So we, we did well theirs. And, and you know, in, in that tournament, we beat we, – we tied three games and won two. Uh, but the worst part was the last game of the tournament was against uh, Cuba – and all we needed, we needed a win. If we beat Cuba, we're in the World Cup. And first 10, 15 minutes of the game, we'll go down 2 nothing, And it was a disaster. And then we end up tying 2-2. And at the end of the game, we're just, it's an onslaught. We're just throwing everything at them, you know, because that was it. You know, we're, we're going to be on our way to, to, the, to the World Cup. And unfortunately, we came up short. But, uh, yeah, it was... Concacaf is fun, it's, uh, but definitely favors. It definitely favors the home team. So, right. if, you know, if if Canada ever hosted it, it might it might be worse off. But Canada would never do that. They would never even think about doing that. Whereas, whereas the United States would. The United States, they love hosting events like that. That'd be great. So that's speaking of tenuous natures. Um, after three seasons, you leave the Whitecaps and you yep. head to Portland. 
And the, mm-hmm. if I read this right, I tried to do some research. The Timbers outbid the LA Aztecs for you. Which yeah. means if that right, I'm not Billy. I'm not sure how much bidding was going on. You know, I'll well, buy you, you <laughs> what was going on. But yeah, I was. I'm on the. I'm out at Vancouver Airport, thinking I'm flying to L.A. for a physical. I'm on. A, I'm paged over a white, uh, white courtesy telephone. I get on the phone, and it's Portland saying, "Hey, you're, you're. We got a flight for you. You go to this ticket. You're, you're coming here. We, we picked you up." So that was my introduction. I was at the airport coming down to L.A. to get a physical. Instead, I show up in Portland. You know, I fly to Portland. Um, and actually, that part of it was I fly to Portland. I get picked up at the airport by the, one of the PR guys. And he says, I'm taking you straight to training. And I said, okay, fair enough. I'm, and then we'll go for your physical. And then you know, then we'll go to the hotel. And then the next day, I was going to fly home, get my get my bags and everything and come back down. So I, they take me to the training facility, which is the other side of town here. And guess where it's at? Training facility, Catlin Gable. So I show up at Catlin Gable. I walk across the campus and, you know, I have to go across campus to get to the field. And I'm like, this is a school. Wow. This is incredible. And I go down below and there's all the guys down there. I meet all these guys. I go for my physical and I'm like, okay. So I, I go home the next day. And, you know, people, my mom and dad and everybody's thinking I'm going to L.A. And I'll go, no, I'm in Portland. This is how it's going to be now, guys. I'm in Portland, which is good because now you can quickly just, you know, a five-hour trip and you're there. So that that was a good part of it. Um, I don't I don't know how much money was exchanged between the two. It was, it was nothing substantial, that's for sure. If you'd gone to L.A., weather aside, the other benefit is George Best was there that year. Yeah. You could have played with Bestie and Bernie Fagan. Yeah, Peggs was there, and yeah. Bernie, and then a buddy of mine ended up going down there, John McGrain. He ended up going down there, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, and they had a good team. Uh, and I guess back then, I, I probably thought, oh, sunshine, L.A., Hollywood, all that kind of stuff. But uh, after that, after I arrived in Portland, uh, I knew I knew it was the, the right city for me. It was just the perfect city. Uh, I mean, I love the Northwest to begin with, but. You know, Portland was like was like a small version of Vancouver in some ways. You know, it was just a beautiful town, and I just I had a I I really wanted to sort of make it. I didn't make it my home right away, but uh, I, I wanted to. I was sort of hoping things would work out so that uh, I could call it home for a while. Yeah, so I, I just wrote down like a small version of Vancouver in case the uh, Whitecaps want to hire me to get the Timbers <laughs> fired up next year. I'll there, tell them that. There you go. Yeah. But that was an interesting season, 77, because the Timbers were changing the, the – the I don't want to say old Timbers, but the first wave of Timbers, mm-hmm. there was a changeover. That was a significant new wave of Timbers came in. The GM went to a team that was only around for one year, Team Hawaii, and he tried to draft your brother, who was still in college and ineligible. Yeah. Uh, but, but still, you, you, you came to Portland, which, you know, Catlin Gable, Portland, became your home even to, to right now. I'm just yep. curious, how fast did that happen, and, and what do you remember about that first year other than what we've talked about? Well, to be honest with you, the first year was – I'm not saying I, I, I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed it. I, I I was staying with Paul Hendry and a couple other guys who were living in the back property and so uh, who were on the team, and, you know, we had a lot of fun together. We lived out um, 
on the west side or out by Tigert and Washington Square out that way. And there's a few guys that lived out there, so we hung around together. But what I, I felt like the team itself, uh, we had a coach, Brian Tyler, great guy, really nice. Uh, but he was the first-year coach. And his training, you know, just training sessions, you know, they, they really didn't, they lacked the training sessions that I had when I left Vancouver. I had a German coach at the, my last year in Vancouver, <coughs> Eckhart Krautsen, and his training sessions were unbelievable. They're so skill-focused and small-sided games. You come down and, you know, Brian Tyler, he uh, he loved English-type type practices, you know, five-a-sides, you know, five-a-sides, here we go. So you do a few shooting drills or something like that, but then you play the five-a-side or you ran, you know. You're, you're a good team. You win games because you run. You lose games because you don't run enough. So practices were basically you always ran. You always did that. But, you know, I just – the fans were brilliant. Uh, I, I loved the stadium in terms of just the atmosphere. I, I really had a good time with it. But at the end of the 77 season, I actually went home and – had a real heart-to-heart talk with uh, my my mom and dad, and sat down because they said, "Well, do you want to do it? You want you're going to go back?" Because you know at that time they hadn't offered me another uh, an, an extension on my contract. Is uh, they signed you for five month periods, <clears throat> and I, you know so they're going, "What do you want to do?" Because I was being offered a lot of teaching jobs up in Canada, and so I, I just sat down. My mom and dad said, "We'll support whatever you want to do." So I ended up going. I was still going to school. I went back up to Simon Fraser. I was the graduate assistant on the soccer team up there, so I coached my brother, and I was with John Buchanan. So they, my mom and dad said, just do your school and then see what they'd say down in Portland. Well, it ended up that the in 78, for the 78 season, they offered me a, a good-sized contract, and I thought, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. And then 78, of all the years that we played here, we had some great teams. I really enjoyed the players and and the atmosphere. 78 was unbelievable because that's when, well, Conway showed up, Charlo showed up, Beanie, Brian McNeil, Patty Howard, Mick Poole, <clears throat> all these guys showed up. And all of a sudden, even though, you know, we had a different coach, Don Megson, Maggie ran a real – it was fun practices, uh, still the English-style practices, you know, heavy on the five-a-sides and heavy on the running. But just the way that people trained uh, was totally different. You know, the way that those players, of which I just mentioned, the way they trained, oh, my God, I learned so much. You know, Bainey's 18 years old, and I'm watching how he's training, and the guy has got skills coming out the yin-yang, you know. He's just unbelievable. But just his application – and then, like Jimmy Conway, you know, he was like uh, our, uh, the current version of Valeri when Valeri played. Oh my God, Jimmy Conway was phenomenal. You know, just the skills and his his approach to the game, his approach to being a professional. So I had I'm watching all these guys who have just come in, and, and it was like I'm learning every day what it's like to be a professional soccer player. Whereas up to that point. I wasn't quite sure because it, it wasn't that different than when I was playing sort of for some of the club teams up in Canada. So that was huge. 78 was a big turning point for just me and just the concept of how how a professional athlete should train and, and approach their game. So that was a lot of fun. And that year we actually did really well. We, we won our run. I think at that time it was eight games in a row. We won. 
which was a NASL record at the time. And then the Whitecaps that same season turned around and did nine in a row. But it was a lot of fun, and we ended up playing the Whitecaps in the quarterfinals and then the Cosmos in the semifinals. We lost to the Cosmos in a two-game series. But it was – I had so much fun. And, and the thing about Meggy, you know, he, I played a lot for him, Don Megson. And one of the things he said to us was, you know, guys, being a soccer being a soccer player is about being a soldier and being an artist. You're trying. You're always trying to be the artist. Be the best artist you can. You always must be a soldier. You gotta. You gotta fight the fight. And if you don't, then you're gonna sit on the bench. You know. And it, that was sort of the, what took us through the season. He was just very good at getting the most out of every player. We weren't. If you looked at us on paper compared to the Cosmos, oh my God, they were phenomenal. And we were just a bunch of players, but. We uh, we were a very good unit, and that that was probably the most enjoyable time. Although the the, the years to follow were all good. The, the, it was Portland was really becoming a, a strong soccer city. Yeah, so it's interesting to me to hear. I mean, we talked about your career up to that '78 season, and you know, you're a leading goal scorer for the Whitecaps. You're a Canadian international. You're coming in with a pedigree. And yet you talk about learning from an 18-year-old John Bain or Jimmy Conway, who was on the other end of his career, and everybody in the middle. It's just there's always something to learn no matter where you are in your career. Well, you got to think about this, Billy. Those guys at 14, 13, 14, were thinking about becoming professional soccer players. By 15, they're in the youth programs, and they're playing alongside these guys. You know, when I was 15, I was a snotty-nosed kid up in, in Canada. I didn't know which direction to turn. I, I didn't know anything. You know, I, I went to school every day. I tried to be a good student every day. But as far as any sort of future in the game of soccer, you know, never never passed my mind. Never. Never, never came through my head. And so that's what these guys do. You know, when you come from a soccer culture like you do in Europe, you, it's established very early. Now, in, in the United States now, currently, you're seeing that. You know, there's there's all these youth, you know, you've got the U.S. youth 15 teams, U 17 teams, U 21 teams. So there are all these kids that are striving to become that, those top players currently. We didn't have those back then. Those were nothing. They weren't even thought of. So I think that's a big part of it. It's it's the culture that you're in, and obviously, within that culture, um, the players that do it. You know, you you, you always they say the game's the best teacher. Well, the game's the best teacher if you're playing alongside quality players because you're going to learn from. Them. If you're playing alongside people that are just going through the motion, it's not a very good teacher at all. So. Uh, and and some people used to say that about the original NESL. Oh, it's it's a retirement home and things like that. But it wasn't. There's a lot of good players. Yeah, you know, when I talked to as I'm thinking back to Clive Toy when I talked to him and he brought in Pele and Beckenbauer to the Cosmos. And right. two things he said kind of stick with me. One is, first of all, that's as far as he wanted to go because they were he wanted them to kind of be there be the good people, the good players, so that the American players could come up with them. And that was, they weren't going to be the team that just spends, spends, spends. Those were the players they were spending on. The other thing is he said he'd rather have good people than good players if it came down to it. And it sounds like there's a 
a mixture of time and place that just has to happen right for, for these things. Oh, totally. And a lot of it has to do with that recruiting process. And in this case, Don Megson, who was the new coach in 78, he brought, he brought good people. He just, you know, you can't find a better team leader, better captain than Jimmy Conway. I mean, you just search the planet, you won't find a better person. And so, you know, he did that. Plus he brought Bainey and Brian McNeil, who were just young kids. He brought a guy named Patty Howard, who was a center back, who, from uh, I think he played in Birmingham. He was a, he was an unbelievable talent. Just you know, coming to the end of his career, but he he still had that passion to play. And so you put him alongside Graham Day, who was just a young guy, just gung ho. He controlled them. So those were center backs. And then Jimmy Conway controlled Bainey. And up front we had Bestie and Scully. And then you had Willie Anderson on the wing. You had Clive Charles on one fullback. I was playing the other side in midfield. I mean, you just you had this team that was. You know, it was it was quality, not necessarily the Cosmos or or Tampa Bay Rowdies or teams that were really stacked with with expensive players, but it was a team that was gonna it was gonna challenge every time they went out in the field. So yeah. that was fun. That yeah, that and you know, I was thinking back to when you're talking about people who come from the 13, 14, 15 years old. That's what they're they're planning to do in culture and thinking back to getting kicked off or chased off a field in Haiti and then being told you don't have enough money to try and make the World Cup. It's those are worlds apart. Oh, miles apart. Well, and and but in saying that, Billy, you could as a player at that time, you could see that it, the gap was closing, that we were actually making progress in, in a lot of those areas mm-hmm. we just spoke about. And that's what sort of from seventy seventy eight on uh, you didn't have to ask me twice about, do you still want to play this game? Oh, my God. It was – I wanted to play it as long as I could play it. And I think, you know, that's sort of – you ask any soccer player today, that's who they are. If you don't have that passion that that, that, that sort of drives you, that, oh, God, I just love what I'm doing, this experience, everything, then you're not going to last long because there's going to be somebody else who has it that will take your place. So. So, so this this is a good place to go into the next question because you've mentioned a couple of coaches, but you actually Vic Crow came back and you played for him as well. Uh, and so when I interviewed you for the Cascadia essay and I asked about that <laughs> and pregame fraternizing, here's what you said to me: We played at Civic Stadium and the visiting team would come down the roadway under the Mac Club Terrace. It was usually about an hour and a half before the game time, and all the teams would sort of gather on the field. And I remember one time Vic Crow, oh my God, he came out and saw us there just shaking hands. And we're shaking hands and talking and everything. And so Vic, you could just see that Vic was pissed. And so at halftime, we were losing. And Vic came in and absolutely reamed us. And he picked up players and said, if I ever see somebody shaking hands and hugging a Seattle player before a game, you'll never get on the field. I'll never play you. He just ripped into the whole team, and maybe rightfully so. That was your quote. Yes. And and to be be fair, you know, Vic Crow was a great guy. I mean, he was a hard-ass guy. He was he was a disciplinarian, but he, a quiet gentleman. He hardly ever raised his voice. When he did, you you heard it, you know. But in the, in that situation, you know, if we are if we're playing we're playing Seattle, I'm pretty sure. If we're if we're winning the game at halftime, nothing is said, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Just on. But we're losing the game, and so I mean there's. Is a, that's what coaches do. They find the moments. You know, it, it, it's a teachable moment. Well, he basically said, you guys had the wrong attitude from the very get-go. 
And it, it brings me back to thinking about, um, you know, Roy Keane in the tunnel with uh, Vieira for, for Arsenal, and they're about ready to square off and fight each other. And this is before the, the teams are brought out onto the field. You think about, yeah, that's sort of the way Vic Crow wanted us. They wanted He wanted us, you know, sort of ready to fight and, and give everything you got. And then after the game, that's fine. You can hug and kiss and take people out for dinner. You can do whatever you want. But if you're getting ready to fight, you better not be, you know, nurturing the other team so and it's funny every coach does it in a different way i mean here's a story for you with clive you know clive was coaching our fc portland back in the early in the uh, 80s when we first started the men's program only and they're playing in a sort of semi-professional league on the west coast mm-hmm. well he took the team down to california to play and they had a curfew the night before the game. I think the curfew was like you had to be back in the hotel and in your rooms by 10 o'clock. And Clive never checked on things like that. But anyway, the next the next day, Clive heard that there's a couple of guys that were out and, you know, beyond midnight. So Clive heard about it. And he goes, he just, Clive just had his way of doing things. Now, he could have yelled and screamed and everything. But what he did is he just pulled all the team together. And he's quiet and demeanor the way Clive liked to be. And he just said to him, he says, you know what, guys, uh, we got to be a team that trusts each other. we got to be a group of guys that when we go on the field, we respect and trust each other. So I'm going to – I just want to do something right now, if that's all right, with everybody in the room. And he's been so quiet about it, so calm. He says, I want you to all go back and get your uniforms and come back in here. So everybody goes out, gets their uniform, comes back in, and they're all sitting around his room. And Clyde goes, there's a box, a big box in the middle of the room. And Clyde goes, okay, guys, we have to trust each other. We have to be honest with each other. We have to fight for each other. We can't, we can't have prima donnas on this team. If we do, you know, this is what's going to happen. And he says, and I'll tell you right now, I'm sorry you have to do this. I want every one of you to turn your uniforms in. We're done. We're going to pull out of this league. And the guys are all looking around at each other. And the box is sitting right there in the middle of the room. And sure enough, that's what he wanted. He says, you know, we can't, we don't trust each other. We don't respect each other. Something's gone wrong. And the two guys stood up and said, he apologized. Clive said, that's fine. Everybody else left with their uniforms. These two guys didn't play that night. You know, Clive, he didn't yell and scream. He's a different style of coach, right? That, that was never his nature. So, I mean, Vic Crow did it his way, and Clive would do something his way. And so every coach, I mean, even coaching young kids, you know, yelling and screaming at young kids doesn't really get you too far. You have to find some other button to push. So, Right. I was just, because that's a team that was stacked too. I mean, the names that were on that team. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, we're not just talking about a bunch of old kids that are sitting around playing some summer ball uh, in the local men's league. That's like Casey Keller. Yeah. Wade Weber type. All those guys, all those yeah. Lee and Eddie and yeah, you know, yeah. they're all Benefiti there. And, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. yeah. Yeah. So Brian, there's something odd I want to mention, and you're probably sick of this question because I've asked you before, but for me, there are three really uncommon injuries in Portland soccer lore. Yeah. One, many MLS era fans remember. The other two are obscure, uh, as obscure as they are absurd. So the major league soccer one was Sebastian Blanco spilled boiling water on his foot. Right. Then indoor soccer's Portland Pri- Portland Pride, Ralph Black. Ralph Black. Because, you remember that? He ran yeah. over his foot with his lawnmower. <laughs> I know. I remember that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, and so for me, the third one is actually kind of frightening and, and not funny, but only because we're here to have this conversation. But you had a fractured larynx in a game. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. What's oh. Right. Yeah. And what's interesting is, is that, but also you came back like six days later and played and subbed in and scored the winning 35-yard shootout against the LA Aztecs, who were, then had Johan Cruyff and were coached by uh, Renus Michaels. Yeah, Renus. Less than a week. Yeah, yeah Renus. Oh, I, I, so, I, I go ahead. That, I remember that whole incident. I mean, we were playing in a game, and I'm, I'm right alongside our bench, running down the sidelines, and I flicked the ball over a guy's head to, and went to chase it. And as I'm running to chase it, the ball's on its downward descent, and he goes to volley it and I go to stick my head out to head it forward a little bit. And he kicks me in the throat. And, uh, basically what happened was I swallowed my tongue and I'm lying on the sidelines right next to the bench. And Doc Butler, he jumps off the bench and he's got this apparatus he uses. He pulls out of his pocket and sort of, he sticks it in my mouth and he basically just unravels my tongue. And, you know, I, apparently that's, it's a, it, it's not common, but that's how you deal with that kind of situation. So within within a few seconds, I'm basically fine. But it, you know, I, I felt my like my I swallowed my tongue. It just rolled back in my throat, and I was my neck was spasming. So they take me to the hospital. They do a bunch of X-rays and tests that night, and then I'm held over overnight. And the next morning, uh, Doc Butler comes in. He says, you know. We can do some surgery. You got, you got to, it shows that you have a cracked larynx. And I said, no, okay. And I said, well, I don't want surgery. I don't want to be in the hospital. So he said, well, it'll heal. It'll be fine. He says, you might not be able to sing those high notes, but you'll be fine. And I said, well, that, that'll do me. So I ended up going back to training the next day. And, uh, yeah, I was on the bench. And then I, got, I subbed on the second half. And... Uh, Back then, they had the shootout. It wasn't a penalty shootout. It was a 35-yard shootout. And I, I happened to be kind of fortunate. I, I did that three times, and I scored three times. So unlike my PKs, my PKs, I was two for four. But, yeah, it was it was fun. Uh, and that injury, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It, was, it, it was different, trust me. Uh, I haven't heard too many of those happening, you know. No, all three of those that I mentioned, I've never heard of anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you, but you, as a player, you did something other players didn't do uh, at the time, or most players didn't do. You traveled with a camera. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, which is really cool because uh, you know you've got memories now, physical. Me- I mean, now it's different. Everybody's got them on their phones, their watches, etc. So yeah, what made you do that? Like, what made you decide I'm just going to start taking a camera with me everywhere we go? Um. When I was in the 11th grade, I had an English teacher. She, uh, you know, who's trying to teach. She used to teach a writing course, and so I struggled with sort of coming up with idea, I mean, not ideas, but writing the things that she wanted maybe us to write on. She so finally she said, "Why don't you write on things that you like to do?" So she said, "What do you like to do?" And I said, I told her about sports and uh, and my family and about camping and all the things I like to do. She said, well, why don't you start keeping a journal? And in that journal, just write down things that you feel at the time, how you things went during your day. And, you know, that way I'll make it easier to write these these essays for me, these small <clears throat> sort of paragraph format essays. So anyway, I, 
I thought, well, that's great. But then I, I got into photography right after that because I, I bought a camera from a friend of my brother's, a real nice camera, and I and had telephoto lens, had three or four lenses. And so I started taking pictures. Well, the, And then I found out that these pictures were great because I even I continued to write in my journals. But all, having these pictures, it made it easier because I just look back at these photos and go, oh, yeah, oh, look at this, look at that. And much like what you do now with your phone, you know, you just – you take you you're doing something. You take a picture of it, and then you you might even talk about it later or write about it later. So that's how I got going. And then I we were doing all this traveling around the the world with the national team and and with the Timbers in America and Canada. I just decided to take my camera with me all the time. And the guys used to kid me. They go, Gandhi, we're the ones that are supposed to have our pictures taken, not you. You're not you know let other people take pictures of us. And I thought, well, you know. Fair enough, but I'm going to do it. So I've got all these. I've got like a. You've seen a few of them, but I, I've got so many photos. I, I, I'm I'm sitting here in my office right now, and I've got over a hundred of these huge albums full of pictures. And I've been going through them in preparation for talking to you. You know, and it's it's something I do. I cherish a lot because they were great memories, and not just of the timbers, but I did I did this for my kids at Catlin Gable. I, I you know, I've, I've done it every. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge photographer now. But when my, we go on vacation, Sue and Sue always goes, "Oh God, how many pictures have you got?" She'll take. You know, for every picture she takes, I take thirty. So <laughs> it, it's pretty crazy. That's great. So what? Uh, I'm curious. Did anything uh, when you were going through those uh, to prep for this? Did anything like just you haven't thought about in a while come up? Oh, lots, lots of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. they, you mentioned the Tiffany Milbert uh, video that we did, so I actually, yeah, yeah. I actually watched that again. Oh my God, what a cheesy video! But it was fun. I mean, we did it, and she uh-huh. she was a cute little. I think she was about eleven years old. She was just the cutest little thing. And then Paul Conway and all these uh, Jimmy Taluda. We had all these kids <clears throat> who were, you know, they were twelve maybe at the time, who are now obviously adults with kids of their own. So it was fun looking at that. But I, you know, I. I'm sitting here, and I probably pulled a dozen of the photo albums off the shelf in the last couple of days and just have gone through them. I've gone through the old fishing trip one where the Timbers went to Alaska fishing. I've done, <clears throat> we went to all these different parties that we used to have, New Year's Eve parties, fancy dress parties, you know, you name it, we used to have them. And so I'd, I'd be there taking pictures, and the wives loved it. <laughs> the guys, the wives loved it. They all go, Brian, could you send us a couple of those? Could you? <laughs> but the guys were not into that kind of stuff. Great. So, okay, I'm going to jump ahead a little, and um, we'll come back to the other question. But you just mentioned the Tiffany Milbred yeah. video. And I got to say, so for people that don't know, this is one of my favorite stories that you've told me. And you and Clive started what would be a multi-part soccer video series. And this mm-hmm. is, a, it's got to be the early 80s. Right, not long after the Timbers fold in '82, so I'll say '85-ish. Uh, yeah, '84. Later, '84. Okay. Yeah. And only one video got made, and it's honestly, I think Tiffany Milbert's story uh, version of the story is better. I can still hear her telling it. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. But can you kind of explain the concept of that video? Well, it wasn't even our idea. It was a businessman came to us who had the, you know, he. He's a, he was into making money, and he loved the game of soccer. He says, and he wanted to help Clive. He wanted to help me. He says, let's we should do a video because at that time, Cobra videos, uh, Cobra was all the skill right. videos. 
they were out. And he says, we should do a set like that. And and but I, we'll do one that actually tells a story. We'll do them as in a storyline. So Clive um, sat down with him, and you know we're, I was with him, and he was telling us how he wanted to shoot this, and, and Clive and I were looking at each other. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, we'll help you uh, and see how how this comes together. So we had the, this one was Tiffany was a little girl playing, you know, who loved soccer. She'd kick the ball around on her own all the time. And she happened to come across Clive coach, Clive and I coaching these, this group of boys. And we'd go through all these different drills with the boys. And she'd be on the edge of the field over the, off to the side. And she'd be trying to duplicate all these, uh, replicate, I should say, all these different uh, moves. And obviously she could. She was brilliant back then. And so that the storyline was, we trained the boys, and she just sort of did it on her own. And then at the end, she comes together and puts on sort of a a demo of who she is, 11-year-old Tiffany Milbert. And she's putting all these skills together. And Clive gives her a big hug and gives her a T-shirt. And you can play on my team any day. I think that was the final comment he, he says. And, and, and when you look at it at the end, of like I watched it the other day, yeah, it's cheesy. But... Um, would have sold, who knows, uh, if he would have done multiple progressions. The, the drills within the film were good. The videos were highlights from the NESL. They were good. So there's quality within it. Um, but, uh, you know, he, and he, he, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, I'm not sure why he didn't per, uh, pursue it more. Uh, but I do have a copy. So if Tiff's got a copy, there are now two copies. I can't remember. I think Karina made me a copy because I, I, I think I bugged her long enough that she said, all right, I'll get it. Because <laughs> it was, I think, tell you how old it was. It might have been originally done on Betamax. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, so there's something else too. And, and I, before I jump on this, um, did we miss anything about your playing day specifically in Portland that you want to talk about? Uh, the play, you know, the thing about the the biggest thing about the playing days, and it wasn't necessarily the playing days; it was sort of the end of it all. Was just it was so sad to see the franchise leave, you know, because and it wasn't necessarily losing the players or things like that. Uh, it's the city was so deserving of what you know they were Saki City USA, they, and they earned the right to be that, you know, they. They were tremendous back then. They were so supportive of what we were trying to accomplish. And, you know, they never got on our case about it. They just always were supportive. And I thought that, you know, when when everything came to an end back then, you know, in 82, um, it was just frustrating because of all the cities, you know, take, take it away from Vegas, take it away from Hawaii, take it away from all these other cities that, you know, struggle not Portland, never take it away from Portland. And and I think today the NWSL is a, is an example of that. You know, and the NWSL is their, their showcase franchise is Portland. And, you know, and you can say that about the, the MLS as well. Portland is, it's just a wonderful place to go watch a soccer game. And so, so the very last Timbers game, I've got to ask you about this. We just talked about the video. Here's something else interesting I found. Uh-huh. Uh, the very last Portland Timbers soccer game, the advertisement for that, it was August 22nd, 1982, <laughs> Seattle Sounders, and it's you on top of a like a six-foot NASL soccer ball. 
look, yeah. you know, acting like you're surfing, and the yep. caption says "Turfs up." Turfs but that up. was, you told me it was like there was no Photoshop in 1982. No. That was you were actually on a soccer ball that big, and there were people trying to hold it so it wouldn't roll there, away. There's two guys in behind me, hold it steady. I'm, I'm sweating. I'm sweating about it because I'm going. You got it, guys. Because yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't a surfer or a skateboarder or anything. So I'm up on this ball and I'm going. Just don't let it roll an inch because if it does, I'm I'm bailing out. Yeah. So that was that was a lot of fun. Actually, the whole thing was uh, the theme was there's a video that went along with it. It was called Turfs Up, and the theme song was Surf City, uh, done by the Beach Boys or Janadina. Except it was Turf City. And they, they had a, a band or a group play it with their lyrics to it. You know, Turf City, Here We Are, you know. And they had all the lyrics to go along with it. And they had a van. The Timbers had a van. It was a, all done up in FC Port, or, uh, Portland Timbers. And it had two sliding doors on each side. It was, you know, brightly colored. Well, what that van took us, uh, we parked that van down at Dunaway Park. And a busload of the players, and at that time we had cheerleaders back in those days. The cheerleaders were there. What they did was they positioned the camera so that it looked like everybody was coming out of this little this van. So the players just kept coming out, coming out, coming out, you know, and they're basically you're coming in from the other side and going out the other side. So we did that at Dunaway Park. We went down to the fountain down in Old Town. Then we went to Pittock Mansion. And then finally in front of the stadium, right at that iconic front the front uh end of it you know and did and repeated the whole process and so it was actually like a oh probably a minute long convert commercial 45 seconds to a minute long and it was it i saw it on tv i think maybe twice you know during the after they put it together and it was just a hoot putting it on the players they're they're having a great time they're you know running through the car you know yelling and screaming it, was actually well done, but that was part of the whole turf stop theme, and that was the advertisement company. That was their thing they wanted to do. It was a lot of fun. It, it was unique, that's for sure. So I, I'm noticing a lot of themes here. One is obviously, um, for me, that I'm hearing a lot is this: you had good teachers in your life. Yeah. You had good people and a passion for play. Um, so the Timbers folded in 1982. You're 30 yeah. years old, which is not like the 1978 version where you're still 25 and maybe have some playing <laughs> options or it's a different point in, in one's career, but you stayed here. Well, part of it was I had a career. Um, I had a, at the time when the Timbers played their last game here, I had a 30 pound cast on my leg. So I wasn't going anywhere very on my ACL, PCL, medial ligament and uh, shattered kneecap. So I was in pretty rush. So I was having, um, just thoughts about that. You know, all, all these guys were leaving. All my friends and teammates were leaving. But, you know, that's part of the game. But, yeah, that was hard. But for me, the biggest thing I had to do was try to get fit. They told me I'd never play again. That's what the, they basically said. You you don't you won't recover from this injury. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I hope to prove you wrong, but I got to get – I have to get back into shape. I have to try to rehab this to the best of my ability. And part of that was uh, we had a union at the time. The union was in effect and they had a uh, career ending injury clause in which if you 
were injured and uh, and you could never play again because of that injury, you know, you get a couple of doctors to to speak out on it, and now all of a sudden you got yourself twenty five thousand dollars. And I was like, God, I need to I need to get on this because you know the league was falling apart. So as soon as the league was going to fall apart, that union's gone. So and within that year, I was sort of panicking a little bit because I I had to. I had to rehab my leg and then go try out for a team because I had to get another, I had to get a professional team's opinion on whether or not I can play. So I ended up, after about a year, I ended up going up to Tacoma to, for the Tacoma Stars. And their doctor just, he pulled me into the office and did a half hour test and everything on my knee. And he said, Yeah, you're done. And, you know, that helped me a lot because now I, I filed for and I got my compensation before the union actually folded. So that was uh right. that was that was good on my behalf. I uh, you know I finally got that, that kind of break. And the other thing that happened was we had a guy who owned the club, Harry Murdo, LP. He, mm-hmm. he he was a great guy. He was just he was so nice to his players. He was just wonderful with his players. Well, he called me in right after the team folded. Um he called me in the office and he said I I, I again he says I see you know you're you're going to be laid up for a while. You, you know you can't go. You're not going to get thrown in the draft dispersal draft or anything. You're going to be laid up for a while. I said, yeah, I'll be done for a while. He says, well, I'll tell you what, you're on full salary for one year until you get released. Uh, basically, you go try out for that team and 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 they tell you you can't play anymore. So I'll pay you your salary for one more year. Which was I'm like oh Harry that's fine he says one stipulation one stipulation you got to come into my office the, the the end of every month and and pick a, pick up the check from me and I, basically all he wanted me to do was come in there sometimes we'd have a cup of coffee and chat about things sometimes he was busy so he'd just say hey, Gandy good luck keep keep working hard you know that, that's who Harry was so I was very fortunate you know some of the guys when they when the franchise uh, sort of dispersed, that was their money done. You know? And some of them didn't have jobs. Some of them didn't get you know picked up by other teams. And so I was very fortunate. And uh, you know, it was it was it was the end of something, but it was also the beginning of something because that right at the end of that year is when I started uh, teaching at Catlin Gable, and then also working with Clive. And Jimmy, Jimmy Conway, worked with them in playing in youth sports. So it was a lot of fun. You, uh, you're doing my work for me. Transitioning, mm-hmm. it's fantastic, right? <laughs> Great. So this, I'm going to talk about Clive Charles for a second because I sure. interviewed you for him. I think the first time I interviewed you was when I was writing about uh, the essays about him. And you said this. This is another quote that, that you said to me. I still coach today because I love the game of soccer. And I think, I think that's evident in what we've talked about so far. But, but you also said, I've always loved it, but I happened to get pulled along by a guy who didn't just love the game. This game was his life. I saw what he did, and I went, wow. I started seeing how I was being influenced and how I was influencing the kids I was coaching. I was like, this is great. It's so much fun. And so when you think of Clive, he did that. He built the game by building players, but he also knew how to build a supporting cast. Yeah. So that yeah. was one of the things you said. Can you kind of – Go into that a little bit. Your time with Clive and just well, and, and when you think about it, Billy, you know, I said this about Clive, but guess what? I could say this about Jimmy Conway, 
John Bain, Bill Irwin, Mick Hoban, because wow. all those guys did very much the same thing. Like soccer was their life. Because that's, I mean, basically they had they got started when they were in their early teens, looking to try to make it professionally. What else did they have? Well, at that time, nothing else, you know. So I, I'm going to make it. And then when they finished the game, so when the game finally got to a point where I, I can't compete anymore, guess what they did? They went into teaching the game, and in the case of Mick Hoban, developing the game uh, financially, you know, just so. That's sort of the that, – again, we're getting back to that cultural thing, you know. For me, the game was – I loved it. I played it. I played it a lot of uh, – most of it for fun. Yes, I played it for money sometimes, but I played it for fun. I I lived my life dreaming I'd become a teacher. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. And soccer got in the way, and I loved it. And then I went from there into, you know, into teaching after I finished my soccer. But these guys – they saw that soccer was everything. And so they, they continued their life in that pursuit. And the thing about these guys, if you, if you look carefully, every one of those guys had a family. Every one of the kids in their family played soccer in a club situation. Every one of their kids played high school soccer. Every one of those kids went to college. Now, one of them, Paul Conway actually got into professional. He, he became a professional. Mm-hmm. But those guys actually learned what America was doing. So they knew that okay, my kids are going to go to school. They're going to they're going to play a sport that they love and play a sport that'll you know feed to their to their character build up. But they're also going to they're going to chase something. They're going to chase an education. And you know. That, that sort of says how they adapted to what was going on over here. I'm not sure if that would have happened if they were raising their families. Or I mean, Clyde once said, I'd ne- I never would have got a job coaching in England. There's too many guys like me back there. And, that, and who's to say that that might be what Jimmy Connolly was thinking? But over here, they continued doing what they loved to do, and they developed so many great people on the way. You know, they they brought an entourage with them. Like Clive always, you know, it it's the village raises the family, the kids, right? The, the village does it. Yeah, the parents are in charge, but you got to if the, if other people are around helping, then the kids gonna get the same information and and, and that development from all over and that's you know that's what these guys did they're they're all absolutely wonderful soccer players but then they went on to continue that dribble the ball in the community they kept on going they you know and i i have total respect for that because that's they've come from one culture into another and they've adjusted so quickly okay so this is a again you're it's like you're reading my script here because you talked about, um, and for a lot of people, that's their first, their their kids are the first ones in their family to graduate from college. Yeah. Um, which I'm thankful for Jimmy Conway starting Pacific University because that's the position I'm in. And it's that's like generational wealth. And so we're talking about people who are essentially immigrants, immigrants, excuse me, mm-hmm. changing the trajectory. And it's not just for them. It's other, it's other people. They didn't just do it for their family. You said village community. 
Yeah. You told me about a, cli- a conversation you had with Clive about coaching college soccer, which I think a lot of people would think anyone close to Clive would have been brought along and go through UP. But he wasn't afraid to tell people that's not a good plan for you. Yeah. And so earlier, right when I said you were present for a lot of really cool soccer journeys, I, d- I wasn't just talking about the Whitecaps or Tiffany Milbert or even FC Portland or all the players you've coached over the years. It's even just that moment where, where uh, Clive said, you know, Brian – College isn't for you. You wouldn't like it and told you why. And before you go on to that, I want to say this because I don't, I think some people would know this, but Oregon high school soccer started a smaller school combined division championship in 1992. So that's 10 years after you started playing your Catlin Gable team won the first one. However, you also won 12 of the first 13, including 11 in a row. That's similar (laughs) to what North Carolina did at the NCAA level when it started having a championship for women's soccer. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I mean, that's a legendary dominance over a decade. And I don't even know how you can do that, especially at high school. You're not recruited. It's high school. But no. more important to me is this. You're building a game for girls at the time. And I want to point out that during that run, Nolan Conway won two big school state mm-hmm. championships back-to-back, took uh, Sunset to four in a row. Four in um, a row. Right? And so how is it? I mean, that's a lot in this sentence, but I'm just, or in this question, but I'm curious how building the game for girls was different at that time the building for boys. Okay. Uh, well, the boys started a couple of years ahead of the girls in, as a sanctioned sport. So they got they, they were on the field two years ahead of the girls. And when I say that, that's important to say because the schools were built during that time for football and track and softball and baseball. They weren't built to have two fall sports that need a lot of field space so you did a lot of sharing of fields and generally speaking the football team would give the boys soccer team one field well the boy, if that was the only other field then guess where the girls played and they, they played at the park down the road you know the public park down the road so when i first started coaching i, I watched a lot of games that were played on just the most horrible conditions possible you know and you know that's sort of how sports is you sort of have to earn your right a little bit and so when the boys started out they had they got bullied a bit by football uh, they they weren't allowed on that football field and no, and there was no synthetic fields except civic stadium and so what happened was the fields by this time usually mud and so you, you know it was it was hard to to really play soccer but when the girls come along they have to not only battle the football in that, they have to battle the boys who have been there longer than they have. And so there's a lot of things that went on. I know at Catlin, I stood up for the girls all the time. I, I was always pushing, you know, the girls always had this one training field. And as soon as I got the head coaching job permanently, I said, okay, we're not, we're not training here anymore. We want, we want to train there. And I, I, I pointed to another field and they, the boys were usually on that field. I said, we got to share it then. We'll share it. And I, yes, that sort of, that kind of mentality was common in sports. You know, I, it's like if I'm the football coach and all of a sudden the boys' soccer team is being formed, I'm going, well, how many players am I going to lose from my football team to that soccer team? How many good athletes am I going to lose? And so you, you sort of had a little bit of resentment towards it. And, you know, a lot of the times, at that time, the ADs were were football coaches and that. So it was – soccer never got a real 
good deal initially. It had to sort of earn its right, and you know, as and it did, and the and plus, then the fields became synthetic, and so that made it a lot easier for everything. But you know, you mentioned Nolan Conway. You know, there's Joe Bala, Bert Halloran, Kit Pierce. These are people that those those early years of when the game was just coming out. You know, you know, girls started up in '79, the boys in '77. So those early coaches, God, I used to go out and watch them because I wanted to find out what they were doing, how they were coaching, and then I found out that well, most of them had club teams and they had high school teams and a lot of their kids played on both, you know, and so the kids were becoming a little bit more specialized. So, you know, that enters into the conversation with me because I, I tell my kids, you know, if you want to be a good player, I mean, you can, you're a good player now, but if you want to be a good player, really good player, you've got to put in a little bit more time. And so you, all of a sudden I'd be directing towards a club. Usually it was FC Portland, but you know, I'd be directing towards the club. So that's how things get. If you want to start a program and be successful, you have to have a plan. And at Catlin, the plan was, you know, the kids were already talented. I had a lot of good players. But Catlin kids are, are sort of high achievers. And so they, if they, they want to be good in academics. They want to be good in soccer. They want to be good in, in everything they do. So that was easy. Now it was just a matter of convincing the school, the, my ADs, the the different heads of the schools, that sports and soccer, maybe in particular, is something we should really make sure that, you know, we support and, and promote within the school. And it ended up that we, uh, you know, uh, again, it's the village raising the kids. Well, the village sort of developing the program. And so I, I owe a lot to my, my students were on but I, I had so many supportive people. I had great assistant coaches. I had great athletic directors. Uh, Mike Davis, was who used to coach out at UP, he ended up as my AD. John Hamilton was brilliant. These guys gave me, uh, you know, they gave, they, they gave me free range to be creative the way I wanted to be creative with, with the soccer program. And it just so happened to work. So it, it's not one, you can't, take credit, full credit for anything. You know, and Clive would say, FC Portland is Clive Charles. And his first response, response would be, no, it's not. No, it's not. FC Portland is Clive Charles, Brian Gant, Jim Reddick, and he'd start rattling off hundreds and hundreds of names because that's who, that's how it was built. So, so a couple of things with that. You met, you were there uh, pretty much from the start, right, with Clive and Bill Irwin and it's yeah. interesting. Jim Rylett was was a coach. He was he went to UP before Clive went there, and yeah. then he was off doing something else. And Clive saw him at a coaching clinic and said, "Hey, you went to UP. Do you want to come coach?" Yeah. And, and like, it's one of those like you're you're just you're one of us. Come in here, and yeah. we know what a great accomplishment Jim's gone to with just not just the Timbers U23 team, but the FC Portland team. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about FC Portland and and kind of how that got going and what that club means to you, because you uh, you coached there until even recently. Yes, I and I'm on the board now. <laughs> I'm a board a director of the board. Um, well, it was it it was such a well organized and well run club, and you know it, it started you know back in the day in 198 when the Timbers folded in night the next year 83 we started doing these Timber reunion games 
And we did them 83, 84, 85, 86. And we brought all the players back who could come back, and we played. And you played against, sometimes you played against the, the FC Portland teams, like the men's team that was playing, like and, Ch- and Chetta and Leonard and uh, uh, Le- uh, who else? Fana was on the team. Joe McQu- Joe McQu- they're all on the team, the, these top players. Well, we play against them. Well, that got the public to always support soccer at a higher level. And that said, that's when Clive said, we've got to have soccer at a higher level because he watched so many clubs and, and high school games. And he says, they just, they don't, they're not enough skill. So when he got the job at UP, he wanted to have a club that you know brought players into his system. So he, he, we started FC Portland, and it was a training club. You tried out for it. We probably took 150, 175 players, and we trained them all summer, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we just trained them. And it was a real unique type of training, lots of cover skills, lots of grid work, lots of individual ta- uh, skill work. Never a compet- Never a, did Clive want to have a team. And he says, oh, we'll, we'll stay away from that. We don't want to cut in on the on the league. We don't want to, you know, sort of challenge the OISA in any way. So anyway, that happened until about uh, 87. And then that's when we, we sort of said between 87 and 93, we did these camps. And we, we said, we've got to do something different. And so I said, all right, we need to, in 19... Uh, 1993, I believe it was, we decided to start a competitive team. And we already had a reputation of producing quality players, highly skilled players. So it was right away it's going to be a success. People who wanted to achieve high standards came to our club. So that was fun. But Clyde knew we can't do it if we don't have coaches. And so he went around and just he went he did a lot of searching for the best coaches and you know Steve Fenno coaches at, at Jesuit he was one of our kids and he had just come over from England right he was just a kid coming over Clive said I like how he coaches I want him I want Rylat I want uh, myself he wanted Bernie he wanted all these coaches he is watching them Steve Anchetta Piercy uh, I mean even Tiffany Milbert and and Tracy Osborne who play out at UBC, uh, at UP, they got into it. And so, you know, we needed we needed the best coaches we could get because <clears throat> Clive had a system, and in order to be part of that system, you had to buy into it. And he knew all these people because he coached them. He said, well, <clears throat> I already have a relationship with them, so I'll, they'll understand the direction I'm going and why I'm going there. Now, he didn't want... This wasn't a cookie cutter thing. This was he wanted the coaches to coach their way, but he wanted certain things to. He wanted a standard, and he wanted certain things to be covered at every age group. And it was it was so much fun initially because we'd sit down and we put together lesson plans for all these practices for all these different age groups, and it was so much fun. First of all, doing them, and then also seeing all these kids getting better doing them, and so. That part of it was a no-brainer. And then when we finally did our, our – um, we brought the younger kids in uh, in 2001. Mike Joyce out at uh, Portland Mailing, he joined his U10 through U14, joined FC Portland. Now we're a club from 10 to 18 years of age. And now we had a 
We had a curriculum, a continuum that the kids just went through our club. And you could, people used to say, you can always tell an FC Portland team and an individual player, just watch them. Just watch how they play with the ball. Watch how they do things on the soccer field. And so that Clyde was so proud of that. He says, yeah, that, you know, some teams, you allow your coaches to coach. And it's one team plays one way, another team plays another way. We had a system where if our a kid on the U15 team wanted to go play with his 17s, he could do it because they played the same types of systems. They had the same skill level. Their the demands on them were very similar. So it was it was very unique at the time. And to be honest with you, I don't see that in the game today. I don't see any club that really tries to accomplish that today because it's a difficult thing. You're the head of the club. Clive has to have a lot of respect from all the coaches and they have to be, the coaches have to be sort of lifelong learners because they've been taught one thing and now they come into FC Portland and Clive says, I want you to coach, but I want you to do this, 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 and this, uh, but coach it in your manner. And so the whole thing was, well, it, it took a while to conceive, but oh my God, once it got going, it was, it was a, it was a lot of fun. So I've got a, a few more, if you don't mind, Brian. Just oh, yeah. Um, any of these, I could go on for for a while, but you have season tickets for both the Portland Timbers and Portland Thorns. Mm-hmm. You and your wife Sue attend those games together. I want to talk about the Thorns specifically for a moment because both um, you and Sue served the game as coaches for many years. She was a coach at Gresham for quite a while. Ten years, yeah. That's a long time. When I think about all the girls you've mentored in the context of soccer and think about the two of you sitting in that atmosphere. And you've talked about how important it is to the league at Providence park. I have to ask if you take some sort of pride in that you're both builders mm-hmm. of the game. This is a second to none place to watch women's soccer. How great is it to walk in there in that place, in that accomplishment and also get to watch your niece play? Oh yeah. Well, that, well, that, that's a, that's a big part of it. I mean, we love watching Christine play, but, I mean, the women's game has been, both for Sue and I in our coaching, it's, it, you know, it's been part of our life, and, and we've spent a lot of time doing it. And to this day, when we go to those games and we're looking out there, you know, we none of those kids we've coached that are playing out there. But we're always, Sue's always bumping into ex-students or, you know, parents, and the same with me. And so you're always, you're finding that the game is, as much as it's a it's a big game, there's so many connections throughout the game that all of a sudden you know that person and that person and that person, and it, it just makes you know it's it's like a family atmosphere. You go to a, a Thorns game and there's so many young kids there; it's just so exciting for them. You know, they're there, they want to see goals, they want to see the girls doing well. The, the environment's fantastic. You know, the crowds are always so supportive, and so you know. You're sort of out there going, yeah, we were a part of this, but let's face it, you're a part of it, Billy. We're, everybody who promotes the game, everybody who's played the game and is giving back to the game, we're all we're all doing the same. We're just passing the torch. You, you just keep, I was at a game the other night. It was Steve Fenna and Sue and I went to a Lincoln Grant game, the just the end of the year rival game, senior night. Mm-hmm. We get there, full house. It's great. Full house at, at Lincoln High School. Beautiful field, beautiful night. And I look out in the field because I know 
a couple of kids playing, probably a half dozen of the kids playing. I coached them in FC. I look on the sidelines. The coach of Lincoln is a goalie that played for me for four years on one of the best teams in FC. She's coaching there. I look on the other side, and Manoli Zunakis, mm-hmm. he's uh, coaching Grant. I coached his daughter uh, uh, at Catlin for four years. Uh, and, and you just, and then in front of us, we're we're sitting there chatting about all the stuff. And then in front of us, one of, a lady turns around and goes, I think you know us. And it happened to be a girl, two girls, who I coached one of them at SC Portland, and Steve Fenner coached the other one at Jesuit. And their kids were there playing. You know, and their kids were uh, they're going to go into high school next year. They're both going to try to get into Jesuit, right? So here we here we are. And I mean, you're just it's just a normal night out, and you have all these connections, and that's what the game is. I mean, let's face it. Uh, yeah, I'm proud of the fact that there's kids that I've coached that have gone on and played pro. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's fun. But the most important thing is all these people and how many good moments did they have? And that, you know, we're talking to these parents, and they just kept saying, "Oh, we did this and we did that as a player. Oh, I had so much fun." And and we're just Steve and I are just sitting there going, "Yeah, that's sort of that's why we do it. It's it's that kind of feedback. It's obviously you don't do it for the money." <laughs> But you, there's something else that you're doing. You're promoting the game, and there's a lot of good people that you're helping become good human beings. So that's fun. So that's Brian. I'm sitting here thinking all of this goes back to a white courtesy telephone that prevented yes. you from going <laughs> to Los Angeles uh, and instead came to Portland in 1977. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, it's it's Billy. It becomes fake. Life is. You know, you never know what's going to, you know, come up next, and so you just got to, you got to, you got to work with it and, and do the best you can in that environment. And, and uh, you know, for me, uh, a lot of people helped me along my way, and uh, I just, I've loved every minute of it. If I had to do it all again, yeah, I, I, there's people that passed on and things like that that I, I wish were still around. But I mean, my life within the game. And you know what is what it means to me and to Sue. I mean, we just love it. We never get enough of it. That's great, Brian. Thank you so much. Hey, you bet, Billy. I love doing right. this. Love doing right. it. Well, well, we'll do it again. Okay, sounds good. All right, thanks, Brian. Take care. You ain't got to be two hundred pounds or a giant at seven three to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV. But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the colour, soccer is the game.